Hey everybody, welcome to our final regular class on the Two Towers. <clears throat> I say regular class uh, because although you know we are coming to the end of the book here uh, and sort of the last of the set topics and themes that I wanted to talk through, I had mentioned that you know we might be able to do one or two uh, Q&A sessions next week uh, just to kind of touch on some of the things that many of you guys wanted to talk about that I didn't get a chance to get to during our regular class sessions. So we're going to uh, talk about so yes, this is the inevitable appeal. Uh, uh, my inevitable submission to the one more week appeal, uh, <laughs> as you guys have been trained to do uh, by the Silmarillion <laughs> seminar people. But anyway, um, so uh, yeah, I'll announce. I'll probably do this at the regular time next week, but uh, we'll uh, uh, we'll see how that goes. So anyway, um, today, however. Uh, I want to get to the choices of Master Samwise, uh, which is one of my very favorite chapters in all of the Lord of the Rings. Um, so, uh, so I'm pretty excited about that. But first, I wanted to start off uh, with I. Uh, uh, the topic we didn't get to last time, which, you know, as I said, even at the time last time, is actually perfectly appropriate because uh, it actually is sort of a, a topic that sort of spans chapters uh, chapters eight, uh, eight and nine. So, uh, so I'm not too sad, actually, to do it at the beginning of class this time. And that is... Gollum's final choice. You know, I've mentioned a while back when we were talking about choices, especially about the choices that Frodo was making, and, you know, we were looking at Frodo wrestling with the ring and the way in which we can see him already getting twisted and um, his accusation of Gollum's becoming twisted and Faramir's observation of Gollum uh, having malice eating him like a canker. And I was talking about how I do think there comes a point where Gollum does pass the point of no return. It's not that he's theoretically unredeemable or that he's already damned or something, but the point is there does come a point past which I don't think he has the capability to turn around and exert his will positively anymore. That point, I would argue, happens right there in Chapter 8 at the end of our reading from last time, and we can see the fruit of it here at the beginning uh, at the beginning of class this time. So let's just go ahead and look straight at the passage there. Smeagol's last chance. Um, as always, I, I welcome any observations that you guys have that you, you, know, you can type in as I, as I read. I always do like to read the passage. I hope you don't grudge the time uh, because I find that, you know, I, I really do want to, I, I, I want to put these passages up not just to kind of draw your attention to them or remind you of them, but so that we can actually look at them carefully together. Um, so I like to read them through aloud so that you have a chance to actually review them and really think about it as we go so that not only the topic as a whole, but these specific, uh, these specific lines are really fresh in your mind as we go on to discuss it. And so Gollum found them hours later when he returned, crawling and creeping down the path out of the gloom ahead. Sam sat propped against the stone, his head dropping sideways and his breathing heavy. In his lap lay Frodo's head, drowned deep in sleep. Upon his white forehead lay one of Sam's brown hands, and the other lay softly upon his master's breast. Peace was in both their faces. Gollum looked at them. A strange expression passed over his lean, hungry face. The gleam faded from his eyes, and they went dim and gray, old and tired. A spasm of pain seemed to twist him, and he turned away, peering back up towards the pass, shaking his head, as if engaged in some interior debate. Then he came back, and slowly putting out a trembling hand, very cautiously, he touched Frodo's knee, but almost the touch was a caress. 
For a fleeting moment could one of the sleepers have seen him, they would have thought that they beheld an old weary hobbit, shrunken by the years that had carried him far beyond his time, beyond friends and kin, and the fields and streams of youth, an old, starved, pitiable thing. Here's Gollum's moment, right here. Now, first, tell me what's happening here. Let's make sure that we understand this scene fully uh, before we even get into sort of specific details or the way that it connects with the larger picture. I want to make sure that we're getting... um, I want to make sure that we're getting this. What just happened here? How would you guys explain this? Good. Kay is pointing out the... uh, uh, the gleam in his eyes again. Yeah, uh, um, Kay says it seems as dependable as his use of the first-person pronoun for signaling bad and good impulses. Um, I agree, Kay. Um, notice also another thing that struck me, and actually it didn't struck me until I just now read it aloud. Which, by the way, is another reason why I read these things read these things aloud because I will often notice something that I didn't even think of while planning the class. Uh, but anyway, the line that really jumped out at me. Um, just now when I was reading it, was shaking his head as if engaged in some interior debate. Normally, we're not in much doubt as to whether or not Gollum is engaged in some interior debate, because he normally does that aloud. That is, I think it's actually very interesting that Gollum is having a silent internal debate. Now, of course, one could argue, well, Gollum may often be having silent internal debates, and we just don't know it, because they're silent, right? But, um, But actually, you know, we were talking about you know, and Kay just mentioned this in her comment, the significance of Gollum's use of the first person, right? When he says, I, um, that seems to be, more often than not, the Smeagol voice, the old voice, that old sense of self, right? You know, when he's talking about himself in the third person, there's this, you know, as he usually does in the Gollum voice, or at least when he talks about himself in the plural, you know, he's using we and us, um, it's it's there's that sense of sort of the diffusion of his personality, right? That he is not just him himself. He has lost his sense of who he was. Um, and uh, uh, here again, the fact that he's having this debate aloud also, to me, seems to suggest that that sort of diffusal of personality. Um, so interest. I think the fact that he's having this debate silently. Um, is actually itself a kind of confirmation that Smeagol's on top in its way, I think, more even more powerful than his use of the first-person singular pronoun. Um, okay, good. Let's see. A bunch of other comments here. Um, yeah. Carissa says, I was struck by the, the gray old hobbit uh, like Gollum, twisted and pained by seeing the love of Sam and Frodo. Um, yes. Um... A spasm of pain seemed to twist him, and he turned away, peering back up towards the pass, shaking his head as if engaged in some interior debate. Um, Let's actually pause there for a second. What's happening here? Um, Now, I see already from the comments comments that many of you are making that you're already going too far, too quick for me. Uh, That is, when when I say what's going on here, I don't mean that in any sort of like broad thematics. I mean literally. Let's make sure we understand. That's always the first step. Always the first step is make sure, you know, this is the same thing when you read poetry. Make sure first you know what's occurring and what's being referred to. So first, literally, what is happening in this scene? Then we can think more about the sort of the larger significance of it. Um, 
Yeah, Tony says, I think this is the last time he is fully Smeagol before he goes over to Gollum for good. Yeah, and Tony, I'd say this is the first time he's fully Smeagol in uh, as long as we've known him, just about. I mean, this is th- that that's the thing which is, to me, so striking about this moment, is that it's not only a moment when the Smeagol is on top. It is the moment when the Smeagol is farther on top than we've ever known in, like, since the 1937 Hobbit, basically. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's something that we shouldn't miss. That's one of the reasons why I think this passage is such a big deal. Because it's not just like, oh, and there was his last little chance, as if one could say, you know, it wasn't much of a chance, you know, he was already pretty, the odds were against him. No, this is, a, this is a big moment. This is a significant moment. Not just from, in, from you know, from the, to, for the rest of Gollum's life from here on, but um, this might be one of the sort of moral high points um, of his life for the last couple hundred years. I mean, this is, uh, I think that, now, look, here I am doing what I just told you not to do. That's not fair of me. I was just about to make a broad interpretive statement, and that's just not right. So hang on. Okay. Uh, uh, uh Kay is, uh, Kay is being helpful and playing along much better than I am here. Um, he's looking on a tableau and it touches him. The image of tenderness, friendship, light and peace, trust and rest, all of these things that he has been exiled from or exiled himself from. Uh, Tony says he fully feels his loneliness here. Uh, Rachel suggests that he is feeling very briefly a flicker of love or at least a desire to love again. I really like that distinction, Rachel. Um, good. Yes. Yes. Agreed. And Yana, I agree with you. That, as I think, Yana is making a crucial point here. I think it's still important, Yana says, to note that the betrayal has already happened. Shelob knows they're coming, and I don't see how uh, how he can repair that mistake. Um, well, I think he he has a choice. That is, he could still not lead them in. Shelob, based, I mean, he's presumably not going to pursue them, you know, down the mountain and into the plain. Um, so he could still. I, I suspect, turn away and not bring them into Sheob's lair at this point. But but Yana's uh, um, uh, 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 point is, I think, so important because it does contribute, or should contribute, to our understanding of, as I say, literally what is occurring in this scene. A spasm of pain seemed to twist him, and he turned away, peering back up towards the pass, shaking his head, as if engaged in some interior debate. What's he debating about? What's he doing there? He's looking back up at Sheob's lair. He has... We should remember... He is returning from betraying them, from going... He has just been been bowing down and worshipping before Shelob and promising them and, and telling her that the hobbits, that he, you know, the, the meat that he promised to bring them is coming, right? Uh, that has just happened. Um, so his look of pain does suggest regret of his treachery. He is having second thoughts here. Um, he is doubting his choice to go through with the plan that stinker that Gollum had way back when we you know she might help she might right no not that way said Smeagol you remember that part of the debate that we looked at before we can see this was in Gollum's mind this was in stinker's mind all the way that was the idea that's the moment that it occurred to him right he seems to think of that on the spot during that debate um but ever since then, this has been his plan. Um, Smeagol is here regretting that. So we're getting the same divide as before. Remember, Smeagol's first re- response was, not that way, not that way, right? Um, 
and it was just simply opposed, as you'll recall, by Gollum saying, but we wants it, we wants it, right? And he has no counter-argument to Smeagol's apparently moral objection, right? No, I, I, I can't betray them, I can't give them to Shelob to eat, right? That's too horrible, um, I'm not going to do that. Um, and Gollum's only response is, but the intensity of our desire for the ring is such that it surely overwhelms any of your pitiful little uh, squeamishness. And it actually, that counter-argument seems to work, in fact, uh, as Smeagol is indeed overcome by it. Um, good. Um, so, so I do think that that's an important thing. To, in order for us to fully understand the decision point that Gollum is at, this is not just a random moment uh, you know, on their trip when he is suddenly over, overwhelmed, briefly, by his positive feelings. All of those things that Kay and Rachel and Tony were pointing to, and I think are absolutely right about. Um, it's not just a random moment. This is when he is on the cusp of carrying out the, his long-planned... I'll come in again. This is at the, right at the point when he's about to carry out his long-planned betrayal of Frodo and Sam. Now, he doesn't regret Sam, but he does regret Frodo. Um, so... Yeah, Tony says it's almost like that moment in the Riddles in the Dark when he has a memory of things before he was in the cave. Yeah, now even that wasn't quite as intense as this, right? But uh, but yes, yes, it is like that. You know, this, these little flashes of, of 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 light and warmth, and the memory, um, the memory of 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 thing when he was not quite so sneaky and nasty. Um, we do get some of that in the Hobbit, um, but again, I think we get it even more strongly here. Um, yeah, good. Um, Yana says they, st- you know, they still need to enter Mordor, and this is the only way at this point. Mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Or, you know, could he possibly try to help them escape? Does he know Shelob's tunnels well enough? The orcs can get through. Um, you know, he obviously is leading them to the tunnel uh, that you know takes them up to that dead end where she has the web uh, closing off the the exit. Uh, the orcs apparently know other ways. Um, so good Gollum, no other ways. Is it possible that he could try to lead them through Shelob's lair without having Shelob catch them? Maybe. Um, would it still maybe be a better idea to turn around and go back around in a different way than to than to go through Shelob's lair? Uh, an argument might be able to be made for that. I have to think, but. Um, at the very least, maybe warning them. Um, oh yeah, I didn't mention the like huge ancient monster that is living in this tunnel. And uh, oh, and I kind of told her you were coming. At the very least, you know that would have been that would have been friendly. So I think there are, there are Yana. I would argue that there 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 basically there is an opportunity. He could in some way, and I don't know exactly what it would look like because it doesn't happen. But he, I think that there is. Um, because because of the way that this happens right before the betrayal, I do think that this that we are led to understand that choosing not to betray them is on the table. It is a possibility. It is a thing which could happen or which could have happened, which of course in the end doesn't. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, Tom says he sees peace in the two of them and there's no peace in the two of him. I like that, Tom. Uh, and he is perhaps also remembering what life was like before the ring. Do you think Diego crosses his mind? You know, Tom, that is actually played down quite a bit. Um, that is to say, 
more could be made of that parallel, right? As he looks at Frodo and Sam and sees Frodo and Sam and their devotion to each other, um, he had a friend once too. Um, and, you know, so he sees Frodo and Sam um, and their faithfulness to each other. Does that bring up memories, especially in a moment like this, of the friend that he had that he murdered? Um, yeah, like I said, the text doesn't remind us of Diego much here. Nothing is said about that, um, but uh, but I do think it's a fascinating parallel, Tom. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, very good. Um, Daniel says his uh, weariness shows also a possibility of repentance. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think even the fact that he's that he is looking weary does suggest that um, he is sort of letting go. Remember, it's only the power of the ring and then latterly, since his loss of the ring, which, remember now, is quite some time ago. Remember, it's it's now been 77 years since he lost the ring to Bilbo? It's been quite some time. Um, so, uh, so what is what is carrying him on now is a desire for the ring. Um, and so, yeah, his weariness, I mean, why can't he just rest? Why hasn't he just rested yet? Well, because he's consumed by his desire for the ring, which, you know, leads him to do all of the things that he does. Um, so, yeah, I think that we can see in that way, you know, the ring, the power of the ring letting go of him because he's letting go of it in that moment. And so we see him briefly, this image of him if, as if he were not, or as, at least as if he were less twisted by the power of the ring, which is why we see him as an old and weary hobbit. Um, Tony says, I wonder if we're meant to think of Bilbo and what he would have become uh, in the old and weary hobbit description. Yes, in fact, in, in, in a way, Tony, it's like he, it's like he becomes Bilbo. Remember, Bilbo um, said things like that at the end of chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring. I'm old, Gandalf. He says, I know I don't look it, but I'm beginning to feel it in my bones. Um, you know, he needs a change or something, right? He's like butter spread, you know, uh, butter scraped over too much bread in the, 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 you know, often quoted line, uh, that he gives, um, shrunken by the years that had carried him far beyond his time. Um, yeah. Now, fortunately, Bilbo hadn't reached the point of becoming an old, starved, pitiable thing like Gollum has, because his, the you know the years had not carried him far beyond his time yet, only a little bit beyond his time, right? Um, and he has not moved. Bilbo hadn't moved beyond friends and kin, fortunately, um, uh, and though he did leave the fields and streams of youth, it was not really in the same way that Gollum did. But but Tony, yes, I do think that that is a that is a parallel that we're supposed to. Uh, um, that we're supposed to be thinking about. Um, yeah, 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 good. Um, anyway, like I said, I am inclined to look at this as a real opportunity for repentance. We have seen potential, but nothing but potential. Gandalf said there was potential, right? Gandalf said there is not no hope that, you know, that he might, uh, that he might change. You know, there is not no hope for his amendment. Um, and this is the one time that we see him actually think about it. Then, what happens next? What happens next has the air of tragedy to it, right? Um, in this moment, 
this moment where he is actually being tender, this moment when he, uh, when his heart seems full of all of these positive thoughts and this love, or at least, as Rachel said, desire to love, um, for the first time in goodness knows how long, Sam wakes up and misunderstands him, right? Sam wakes up, and in the moment of his waking up, he thinks he sees Gollum pawing at Master, right? He thinks that Gollum is up to some mischief. And tragically, it's the only time since we've known him that he's not, in fact, up to mischief in that moment. Um, yeah, Tom says, it's interesting that the narrator says, could one of the sleepers have seen him? And then one of the sleepers does and reacts in the opposite way to the narrator the, the, the narrator has stated. Yeah, yes, Tom, it's true. But, but at the same time, I think that... I don't think it's that... Uh, you know, the implication is, Tom, is you're sort of implying the wrong sleeper woke up to see him. Possibly. But, uh, but I don't think so. I, well, let's look at what happens when Sam does wake up. Um, he says that he's doing nothing. Gollum you know, he says, you know, what are you doing? I dare say, said Sam, but where have you been to? Sneaking off and sneaking back, you old villain. Gollum withdrew himself, and a green glint flickered under his heavy lids. Almost spider-like, he looked now, crouched back on his bent limbs with his protruding eyes. The fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. Sneaking! Sneaking! he hissed. Hobbits always so polite! Yes, oh, nice hobbits! Smeagol brings them up secret ways that nobody else could find. Tired he is, thirsty he is, yes, thirsty. And he guides them and he searches for paths, and they say, Sneak! Sneak! Very nice, friends! Oh, yes, my precious, very nice! Now, Sam feels a bit remorseful. What, uh, what do we make of this? Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Tom, you're right. I don't want to leave your point behind entirely. Tom says uh, that, you know, the fa- that it's interesting that the, fa- that the fact is what the narrator says would happen does not. Um, yes. I'm trying to figure out how to say what I want to say here, Tom. I think that what the narrator is suggesting... The narrator is looking at this scene from the outside, right? It's seeing the tableau of Frodo and Sam lying there in this attitude of peace and harmony and love and devotion and seeing Gollum respond to that. Um, Could one of the sleepers have seen him at that moment? You know, could they have seen him even sort of from that perspective? Um, Sam, when he wakes up, doesn't see an old weary hobbit. Um, He sees Gollum pawing at Master, right? Um... still not feeling I'm saying this uh, in any kind of a satisfactory uh, uh, way, Tom, but um, Sam not seeing an old weary hobbit when he first opens his eyes. To some extent that is certainly a reflection of what Sam expects to see, right? Um, And that, I think, is part of what the narrator means when he says, if one of them could have seen him then. Um, That is, again, from that outside perspective. Um, If they could have seen the scene with sort of fresh eyes. Because, by the way, I don't think there's really a big 
visual difference. That is, I don't think Gollum's appearance has changed. He still looks like his normal self when he's reaching out to touch Frodo, and he still looks like his normal self when he crouches back on his bent limbs with his protruding eyes. His eyes are not protruding more now than they were before. Uh, His limbs were not less bent back then. Um, He doesn't look less gray and weary now. Um, What the narrator is sort of pointing out to us is his... You know, his inside, his spirit, um, that if you could see him, if you could see him sort of in a, not in a literal sense, from the right angle, this is what you would see. Um, Now, afterwards, this other thing, this spider-like thing is what you would see. But again, it's not that his appearance changes. Um, It's just a question of how you are looking at him. Uh, And... So when Sam looks at him, he sees Gollum. Of course he does. And he sees Gollum pawing at Frodo. And Gollum was not, in fact, intent on mischief when he was pawing, to use Sam's word, at Frodo. But Sam has no reason to know that. And in fact, Sam has lots of reason to be suspicious. And this is one thing that I think it's, it's, it's really important for us to note because it's one of the things that makes this scene so complicated. It would be easy just to say, boy, did Sam blow it. Gollum lost his one opportunity to repent, and it was all Sam's fault. If Sam had been less hard on him, if Sam weren't so rude and suspicious, then maybe Gollum could have been saved. Or if, you know, if Frodo had been the one to wake up, maybe, instead of Sam, maybe maybe Gollum could have been saved. It's not that simple, though. Um... Where have you been to, sneaking off and sneaking back, you old villain? What's the answer to that question? The answer is, the lair of the monstrous entity who is about to eat you and to whom Gollum is betraying you. Uh, Was he sneaking off and sneaking back? Yes! Is he an old villain? Yes, he absolutely is. He has not just been contemplating, but has been laying the groundwork for the most villainous thing he's going to do. He has just been betraying them. And his protestations, when he's trying to make Sam feel bad. Hobbit's always so polite. Oh, yes. Smeagol brings them up secret ways that nobody else could find. Tired he is, thirsty he is. Um, and he searches for paths, and they say, sneak, sneak. Yes, because he's sneaking, because the whole thing is a plot to destroy them from the beginning. Of course, he leads them up, brings them up secret ways that nobody else could find, only because that's how he's going to kill them. So Sam is perfectly justified in his response. That's part of the horrible irony of this. So again, you know, it's not just like... Oh, man, bad on you, Sam. You know, if you'd only been more tolerant... The moral is, if Sam had been more tolerant, Gollum might have been saved. No! Gollum is, in fact, wrong. Um, Now, and I agree, you know, Tom was just saying that it's a heartbreaking missed chance. Um, uh, You know, Sam has every reason to distrust Gollum, and Gollum deserves to be distrusted. His very words here demonstrate how he should be distrusted. As he, you know, tries to do this whole, like, you know, passive-aggressive thing against Sam, and and he's lying. He's lying all the way through. We know, we certainly know, in retrospect, after the next chapter, what he's doing in the latter part of that second paragraph there is simply posturing. He, you know, maybe he believes it. Maybe he's feeling bad about himself. Maybe he actually does. We know that he actually does resent Sam. But Sam's suspicions of him are perfectly just up from the very beginning, 
perfectly justified. He is right about Gollum. Um, it's not wrong, but again, that still that doesn't make it tragic, though. Um, it, it doesn't make it not tragic. Is what I mean to say. Um, uh, yeah, Trish says it, it, uh, it has occurred to me to wonder if Gollum's stubborn refusal to accept Sam's apology after this scene and his continuing to poke Sam about the sneaking accusation is Gollum's way of justifying his decision to take them to Shelob. Um, so it's more about his inner justification to, to himself than about irritating Sam. Trish, I do think that there's an element of that. Um, remember the line, uh, you know, um, when he's when he says that he escaped and uh, um, Frodo says that, uh, you know, they, they think that he was allowed to escape. Remember the line that the narrator says that he had the air of a liar, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the indignation of a liar who is, uh, you know, who is suspected when for once he's telling the truth, right? Um, that is, and I, so I think that there's some, some sort of, not that he's telling the truth here, but again, he is a habitual liar and he is used to, um, you know, and, and so he he is objecting to being called a sneak, exactly because he is a sneak, um, and because he was sneaking. Um, he's a, he uh, he objects to being called an old villain because he was in fact being um, an old villain. Uh, yeah, um, and so so, but but Trish, I do you know is this the way in which you know is this a mechanism in part by which the 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 golem persona, if we can even call them totally separate persona, um, by which the Gollum persona keeps down the Smeagol persona, by, you know, that, that, that what we're hearing is almost like, you know, half of an argument with himself. You know, I think, I wouldn't go too far with it, but I do think, you know, that that's kind of an element um, in it. Um, yeah, 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 Trish adds, like, Stinker is using the situation to quell any more possibility that, that Slinker will back down. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Tony says the two perspectives of Frodo and Sam uh, towards Gollum are not opposites, but they're two equal truths about Gollum. Gollum is really capable of evil. I would add not just capable of evil, but evil, doing evil. But Gollum is also really capable of e being redeemed. Um, and I agree that, you know, it, that's one of the things, you know, Tony's sort of suggesting, it's one of the things that makes uh, the story of Gollum so applicable, as, uh, as uh, Tolkien, to use Tolkien's language there. Um, and certainly, even within the story, Frodo is applying it uh, to himself. Um, now, Let's follow this up with the passages we get here in chapter nine, um, when we actually see the plan come to flu come to fruition after he passes this book. Oh, I would also one uh, one thing I do want to say also before we leave this passage here. Um, uh, almost spider-like, he looked now crouched back on his bent lib limbs with his protruding eyes. Um, again, it's not that he has changed. It's not that he's been forced backwards by Sam. Um, this too is Gollum that we see here, and this is a choice that he's making. And this is again, this is one of the things, you know, coming back to what Trish was just saying, and, and the point that I had been making about the way in which he is appearing to be super offended um, at being perfectly justly <laughs> accused. <clears throat> right? I think that um, what's so important about this? This shows his choice. He's now made his choice. I think that the choice is made here. The choice isn't made in Shelob's lair. Um, he has not yet 
stepped off, right? He has not yet done the deed. He has not yet actually committed the betrayal, but he's made the choice already. It is at this point when he withdraws himself and begins to look all spider-like, the choice has been made. The opportunity for redemption is past and it will never come again, and I am not convinced that it's possible after this moment um, for Gollum actually to turn back. I don't think he has the strength anymore, but, but it's his choice that he doesn't. I think his own words... And the lie in his own words, the manipulation in his own words, not just the lie, but even Trish thinking about your point, the self-deception in his words suggests that um, he has now thrown himself into that. That's, that's, that. that's the choice that he has now made. He has turned away from that, uh, you know, that memory of love and affection. Um, yeah, yeah, um... Yeah, Tony says, I think it's interesting the way Tolkien uses spider-like to describe Gollum, since if you've never read the story and don't know what's coming, you wouldn't know about Shelob. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly right. It's just an anticipation of Shelob, right? It's one of those things which, in retrospect, is very clear. Um, uh, But in the short term, when you're reading it for the first time, it's merely creepy. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Kay says he's been choosing these kinds of choices for so long, those muscles are by now incredibly strong, so much so that an inclination towards redemption is only a fleeting moment. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, whether you think of it in terms of, you know, building up his moral muscles by always doing that one thing so that na- now it comes so easily, I would be tempted to describe it differently, Kay, and describe it as as uh, weakness, you know the the the, you know the the uh, decaying of his muscles rather than the building of them up. But I do see. But I think you're getting at exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it's not that what he does now is so bad that it dooms him forever. It's worse than anything else he's ever done. I mean, he's done murder before. We know he's done lots of horrible things. Um, again, it's not that this is the last one or the worst thing that throws it over the top. But this is the last time um, he's been. He's been going down this path for so long, this is his last chance to leave the path. He has this one last opportunity, but he doesn't take it. And instead, we see him not just being pushed down, but going down through his self-justification um, and through his, through his manipulative, deceptive self-justification. We see him going down that path again one last time, and that other path is never going to open itself up to him again. Um, how about this guy? I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a metaphor that I'm more comfortable with. Because again, I really like what you're getting at. Um, maybe it's like a slope, right? You know that that you know he's 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 headed downhill, and the slope is getting more and more extreme, and and it's just you know now he's reached the point where he can't climb back up that hill anymore. He could have turned around, thinking of repentance. You know, he could have turned around and climbed back up, but once he once he passes this slip of the of of the hill where the slope gets too steep he can't anymore and he just he's going to continue down the same direction he's always been that's an analogy that i think works a little bit better for me i don't know if it's totally accurate but uh it's kind of appealing especially uh since it involves uh, a precipice which seems apt for several reasons uh under the circumstances but let's go back and see after the point of no return what is what does Gollum on you know sliding down that slope look like this is, of course, when he ambushes Sam. We'll see. No, sorry, this is not when he ambushes Sam. That's the next slide. This uh, is when the narrator tells us in Gollum's voice about the plan that he has. This is when uh, the premeditation of the Sheila betrayal is made plain to us. 
We'll see, we'll see, he said often to himself, when the evil mood was on him, just as he walked the dangerous road from Emmonwheel to Morgulvale. We'll see, it may be, oh yes, it may well be, that when she throws away the bones in the empty garments, we shall find it, we shall get it, the precious, a reward for poor Smeagol who brings nice food. And we'll save the precious as we promised, oh yes, and when we've got it safe, then she'll know it, oh yes, then we'll pay her back, my precious, then we'll pay everyone back. Um, yes, good. Now, of course, as Tony points out right away, we've got the we here, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, we've, so, so we, we see him thoroughly dominated by that. Um, yeah, Daniel says, what is he, like, in what way is he in her debt? What is he paying back? Clearly, he's, um, he hates being made to crawl and grovel. He's been made into a, 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 a crawling thing, a creeping thing. Um, he hates that. Um, he wants to be, you know, he, even he, you know, we remember his, uh, his visions of Gollum the Great, right? Um, he's going to get his own back. We'll see if, he, if, he, if he'll stand being kicked, uh, you know, and, and, and robbed. Remember, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, not, or I should say clumsily quoting Gandalf's words to Frodo from what Gandalf learned from Smeagol, or, you know, from Gollum about himself. We know that he has these resentments. Um, so he, it seems to be, when he says, we'll pay her back, it sounds like he wants to, he, that he's going to, he's going to, I don't know what he's going to do to Sheolab exactly to pay her back. Um, but there seems to be some resentment there. He is not just a cheerful follower of, uh, of, uh, um, of Sheolab. So I don't think that that's actually any sense of a positive debt. I think that's retribution that he's describing. Um, he has, um, uh, he has, uh, he thought himself ill-used. Tony is remembering more accurately uh, part of that that Gandalf quotation uh, than I was. Um, yeah, and I think he he sees himself ill-used by Shelob. He has abased himself before her and worshipped her to save his life, right? But he, clear, I think he pretty clearly doesn't like it. Um, Kay points out accurately his uh, his posturing to himself even in private, poor Smeagol who brings nice food, right? Um, one line which I think is fascinating here, um, two things, two points that I would make. Um, first, we shall get it, the precious, a reward for poor Smeagol who brings nice food. A reward from Shelob, right? Shelob is going to let him have the precious, is going to let him have the, you know, you've had... Uh, you know, you've had their flesh, so when you throw away the bones and the scraps of clothing for which you have no use, can I keep them, Shelob? Right? He's cutting a deal with her, maybe hoping for a reward from her. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm reading into this too much. Maybe I've been thinking so much about, you know, the sort of the fate and uh, the kind of fate in his uh, faith in his doom that Frodo has that we've been talking about that I sort of wonder here if that sense of the reward, um, that if even Smeagol isn't thinking of something slightly more cosmic here um, than something, I was going to say Shelob tossing him a bone, but that's quite a sort of disgustingly literal um, in this uh, in this instance. Um you know, if in some sense he feels again like that, that and 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 it's suggested to me in particular by the way his emphasis on payback, right? He feels like he is owed something. Um, he is owed uh, 
uh, satisfaction for all of the wrongs that have been done to him. He is owed, he deserves to have his precious. Um, and I wonder if there is even some kind of very vague appeal to, um, uh, to destiny here. You know, that, that he, you know, him, him getting his just desserts in some sense from his point of view. The other thing, the other point that I wanted to make was, um, uh, where is, oh yes, we talked before about his relationship with his promise, right, and how the oath that he takes on the ring binds him. Frodo cautions him that it will bind him, even though uh, the ring may twist it to his undoing, because the precious keeps the promise. Um, and you recall in that initial debate, even the Gollum voice, not just the Smeagol voice who didn't want to break the promise, but even the Gollum voice seemed to be working around the promise rather than simply breaking it. Um, here, that rationalization has moved to a different place, I think. Um, and we'll save the precious as we promised. That is not what he promised. He has deceived himself there. And we can see the steps of it. His actual promise was to serve the master of the precious. Clearly, betraying the master of the precious to death and, and, and leading him to be eaten by Shelob is not serving the master of the precious. He is breaking his oath by doing that. But remember the first step of rationalization that we got back during the debate, right? Um... You know, if we take the if we take the precious, then we will be the master. Then we can help ourselves, right? Um, he remembers the promise to help the master of the precious. But if we if we're the master, then we can help ourselves, right? That's that's already a piece of sophistry on Gollum's part, right? You know, it's it's clear that he's not serving the master of the precious by taking it away from him. But nevertheless, um, we can see how this. Now, his convincing himself that what his promise really was was to save the precious, right? And that by betraying Frodo to death and then taking the ring for himself, he'd still be fulfilling his promise um, is, a, is a, piece of, uh, a piece of deep, um, uh, deep uh, self-deception. Um, and uh, Tony asks an in interesting question. Wouldn't the master of the precious actually be Sauron? Yes, though it's quite clear, even from Gollum's point of view, when he's making the promise that he doesn't consider that, right? Uh, you know, that he's going to keep it safe from Sauron and, and not for Sauron. Now, of course, if he were to take the ring away from Frodo, he would indeed be serving the master of the precious in that sense. So I certainly think, Tony, that that works as a piece of irony, as a piece of dramatic irony, of which I think that you know, Gollum is ignorant. I don't think he's thinking in that direction at all, certainly. Um, it does kind of resonate in that way, and, and, it, and it, it is, that sense of it is in fact appropriate and does work, but again, I think that's only irony. Um, uh, yeah, good, good. Yana uh, was, say, was just saying exactly the same thing. Um, very good, very good. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, Kay says that the tragedy of his story is not the tragedy of the victim, but the tragedy of watching his slow march down the road to that final inevitable precipice. Um, yeah, yeah, and knowing that it's not completely inevitable, but yet watching him um, at times crawl, at times dash headlong towards that precipice. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that we do, we do see that. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, good. Uh, Tom is quoting a passage uh, that he found uh, good, the passage from Tolkien's letters, when Tolkien refers to the scene, the scene of Gollum's near repentance. Um, and thank you, Tom, for quoting that for me. I'll, I'll, I will uh, I'll read that. Um, Tolkien says that, for him, perhaps, the most tragic moment in the tale comes in that passage, when Sam fails to notice the complete change in Gollum's tone and aspect. His repentance is blighted, and all Frodo's pity is, in a sense, wasted. Shelob's lair becomes inevitable. Um, he goes on to say that the logic of the story necessitated this and that Sam could hardly have acted differently. Um, but uh, he does go on to speculate how things could have been different and what the story might have been like had Gollum, in fact, not had to, had that scene gone differently. Um, including the possibility of Gollum voluntarily throwing himself into the fire once he had gotten the ring. Um, but uh, that's... Uh, even uh, Tolkien himself is sort of speculating. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, here's that other passage I was talking about. Um, got him, hissed Gollum in his ear. At last, my precious, we've got him, yes, the nasty hobbit. We takes this one, she'll get the other. Oh, yes, Shelob will get him, not Smeagol. He promised. He won't hurt Master at all, but he's got you, you nasty, filthy little sneak. He spat on Sam's neck. Again, we can see his the malice, which is eating him like a canker, as Faramir tried to tell them. Um, we see also, again, him warping that promise. There is really no sense in which he can say honestly to himself that he is keeping his promise. Um, he promised. He won't hurt Master at all. Um, no, I'm sorry. When you deliberately bring him to the lair of a monster who is going to eat him, warn the monster in advance and contrive to have him caught, uh, you've hurt him. Uh, that's your, uh, you know, it is, this is a, this is a piece of, of, of total sophistry. Though again, it's interesting that we can see Gollum still trying to convince himself, right? Um, uh, not Smeagol, right? No, because remember, Smeagol doesn't want to hurt Master, right? Um, but Gollum can tell Smeagol, no, no, you're not, you're not hurting him. Um, <laughs> Trish is teasing me for my Gollum voice. Sometimes when I do Gollum, and I will admit when I read the book to my children, I do do a more sort of squeaky Gollum voice. Um, one of the reasons that I wasn't doing, you know, like the poor man's Andy Circus here uh, in reading Gollum's voice, um, or even the poor man's Rob Inglis for that matter, um, is uh, that I want I, I want to kind of emphasize his humanity. I think it's one thing that we can kind of skip. Gollum's humanity, that is, not Andy Circus's. But anyway, uh, I wanted to emphasize Gollum's humanity. Um uh to to read him in a sort of a you know, like something like closer to my regular voice. Um because again I think that's it's an important thing that we not lose here is the fact that this is somebody this is a person who has made a choice there. Um yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, Kay says, uh, maybe this is the dance of free will and predestination that Tolkien achieves. The precipice is the inevitable end of that road, but it was not inevitable that Gollum walk that road. Um, 
Yeah, in part, in part. Um, but yet also, okay, the other place where it comes in is that that end, it's not inevitable in the sense that Gollum had choices and didn't have to walk that way. But it was also doomed that he would. Um, the fact that he is going to... Um, Providence already has in mind a mechanism which will come to Frodo's aid at the last hour when he himself, Frodo that is, fails in his quest. Um, Providence has uh, uh, a plan laid, a contingency plan for that event. Um, And that is Gollum's betrayal, Gollum's failure, Gollum's uh, destruction. Um... So in that sense also, it's inevitable. But that doesn't mean it's not a product of Gollum's choices, or that he couldn't have done it differently. Um, uh, I think here, one of my favorite quotations, one of my favorite quotations from the entire Tolkien corpus, actually, um, is that quotation from the end of Leaf by Niggle, when Niggle and his neighbor Parrish are looking back at choices that they made during their lives that they regret, and thinking about how much could have been changed, how much could have been different had they chosen otherwise. And Niggle says, things could have been different, but they couldn't have been better. Uh, And I think that we can see uh, being very true of Gollum here. Um, but I got two other things to talk about besides Gollum, so let's move on. I want to talk about uh, Shelob, and in particular, what I want to talk about is, um, though actually, you know, Kay, your reference to free will and predestination is kind of a nice setup for what I, what I want to talk about next. I want to talk about the battle of light against darkness as we see it happening in the confrontations with Shelob, um, and the way that that Tolkien as narrator here emphasizes, uh, the way that he characterizes the battle of light against darkness. Um, and the way he kind of balances both the elements of personal choice and per, and, and personal will, um, the, and the way that, the way that he balances those with um, the sort of larger archetypal sort of bigger picture conflicts that seem also to be happening here. Entering, of course, Shelob's lair. Drawing a deep breath, they passed inside. In a few steps, they were in utter and impenetrable dark. Not since the lightless passages of Moria had Frodo or Sam known such darkness, and if possible, here it was deeper and denser. There, there were airs moving, and echoes, and a sense of space. Here the air was still, stagnant, heavy, and sound fell dead. They walked, as it were, in a black vapor, wrought a veritable darkness itself, that, as it was breathed, brought blindness not only to the eyes but to the mind, so that even the memory of colors and of forms and of any light faded out of thought. Night always had been, and night would al- always would be, and night was all. Remember Gollum's darkness riddle? I can't help but think of Gollum's darkness riddle here. Um, uh, it comes first and follows after, kills life, ends laughter, right? This is very like the darkness that Gollum was was uh, talking about uh, in his riddle. Um, and Yana and Tony are again 
right in the same place at the same time. Yana, this time I'll give you the credit because I read Tony's comment first last time. Yana's asking if this is an example of unlight. I think that's exactly what this is. Readers of the Silmarillion um, will be will remember um, that what is being described here is most likely something which is at least similar to, if not identical with, the unlight that Ungoliant was able to create. You, you, you may remember when Ungoliant uh, destroys the trees of Valinor and drinks the light from the wells, you know, the sort of liquid light that was uh, in those wells that they kept. Um, uh, um, Ungoliant is then able to make a darkness which is not just absence of light. Darkness, which was you know there was there was made in that in that in that hour an unlight. Tolkien says, um, light is normally a negative thing, merely the absence of light. But there is a darkness. Tolkien suggests that is it's uh, that has positive being, which is light taken and twisted and reversed, not merely absent, um, but light itself made into darkness. That seems to be what Ungoliant is doing. She's taking in light and she's spinning it forth. Uh, she's, well, not exuding it because that just makes it sound like it's leaking out of her pores. <clears throat> she brings it forth again as darkness. Um, this positive darkness uh, that makes uh, poor Tolkis beat the air in vain. I love that image. Um, but, um, so again, those of us who have read the Silmarillion and remember that passage with Ungoliant will sur- surely be thinking of it here, assisted by the fact that we are told uh, just a page later that Ungoliant is the last child of Ungoliant to trouble the unhappy world. Um, so this seems to be clearly, in fact, what this is. And and so, therefore, what we get is a description of what that kind of darkness looks like, the way it brings blindness not only to the eyes but to the mind. Um, the other thing, though, that I would say about... First of all, two things. The one thing. The thing that I'd say first is, notice I've been saying, those of us who have read the Silmarillion, and if we have that passage from the Silmarillion in mind, then we will remember this, or then we will think this. I'm not saying that to be... You know, maybe that, you know, that might sound like snobby or something. Those of us, you know, uh, illuminated ones who have read the Silmarillion uh, and are better than those of you who haven't will think of this. That's not what I mean at all. Um, the reason I'm saying it that way is because I want us to remember that the number of people, the percentage of people who had not read the Silmarillion when reading this passage first was at one point a hundred percent. Remember, the Silmarillion is not published until twenty years after this book came out. Um, so the audience for whom Tolkien was writing uh, had no way of knowing who Ungoliant was. So that reference on the next page uh, would have been a, a complete mystery to them. And um, therefore, it's important and and. So again, I bring this up not so as to say, forget about the Silmarillion, it's not important, or it doesn't help, or whatever, Um, but I think it's important when we're reading The Lord of the Rings to recall that it was not written with a knowledge of the Silmarillion in mind. Tolkien is not here. It would be inaccurate, and I think significantly inaccurate, to to say Tolkien is making a reference to the Silmarillion here. He's not making a reference. He's not making a reference to a book that nobody's read. He is describing something which is, in fact, resonant with... We can see, sort of in retrospect, 
that it's connected to this other passage that Tolkien undoubtedly had in his mind when he was writing it. But the point of it is not to remind us of the Silmarillion, even when he explicitly alludes to Silmarillion characters, as he will refer to Baron and Turin later on. Now, Baron, we've gotten some of. Turin, nobody knows anything about. Um, but anyway. Um, the important thing, though, is, again, not just to be thinking of Ungoliant, but to be but to be noticing what's happening here and, the, and what he's describing here. One of the things that I think... Uh, the, the, the other larger point that I would make about this passage uh, is that we, we are given here an illustration of what Tolkien is always hesitant to call magic at work. Uh, Sam and Frodo are being influenced. Um, the will of Shelob is seeking to dominate them. That's why blindness is being brought not only to their eyes, but to their mind. The darkness that Shelob puts out is part of her power. It is the manifestation of her power. Um, and the way that it affects others is, is how she dominates them. Um, so rarely do we get spells being cast in, you know, like a Dungeons and Dragons-ish kind of way, you know, that is like somebody shooting fireballs or sending out bursts of light. Um, it happens at times, especially with Gandalf uh, in The Lord of the Rings, but it's very uncommon. But I think it's important that we don't miss the kinds of cues that Tolkien gives us when someone is in fact exerting power over somebody else. Galadriel does it when she uh, tests the minds of all of the people in the Fellowship. She is doing magic on them, to use the really clumsy language, which again, as I say, Tolkien avoided. Um, here we can see how their hearts and minds and wills are being blanketed, are being suppressed. Are, she is attempting to rule them and dominate them. And that last sentence is the expression of that, right? Night always had been, and always would be, and night was all. That is where they are being led in their own hearts and minds, right? If, uh, you know, th that's the sort of mantra that her will is whispering to their wills. Those are the, uh, those are the, state, the you know, sort of the, the belief statements that she is trying to get their wills to invest in, right? Um, if they buy that, if they believe that, if their own hearts and minds go, you know, align themselves to those ideas, night always had been and always would be, and night was all, if they're willing to accept all three of those things, then they're hers, then they're dead. Um, and again, I remember Gollum's riddle. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, Erica asks, uh, you know, that she's, she's, she's struck by the by Frodo's and Sam's references to heroes uh, in the Silmarillion, like Arondil, and like I mentioned, like Turin, uh, in a little bit. Um, uh, how much of the Silmarillion did Tolkien have planned out at this point? Almost all of it. Um, all of those stories, Arondil's story, Turin's story, Baron's story, he's already written several versions of. They're not published yet. Um, only a few people know about them. You know, uh, his publishers read them uh, fruitlessly so far. Uh, he, you know, C.S. Lewis has read them. Uh, Christopher's read them, uh, but very few other people had read them. Um, but no, they're all there. They're all told again, and often in multiple forms. Um, the story of Turin's already gone through like four drafts, five drafts by this time. Um, now, 
but but anyway, going back to the uh, Shelob's will here and her exertion of her will over them. Look at the conflict between Frodo and Shelob. Um, Frodo gazed, so he's just pulled out the star glass. Frodo gazed in wonder at this marvelous gift that he had so long carried, not guessing its full worth and potency. Seldom had he remembered it on the road until they came to Morgul Vale, and never had he used it for fear of its revealing light. Remember, he 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 reached in and touched it. He put his hand on it in Morgul Vale, um, and it strengthened him, and it 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 turned away the enemy's mind. His mind was strengthened to turn away the enemy's mind, but he hasn't used it in the sense of actually bringing it out and shining it. Right? He didn't do that in Morgul Vale. Aya Ayarendil Elenionon Kalama, he cried, and knew not what he had spoken, for it seemed that another voice spoke through his, through his, clear, untroubled by the foul air of the pit. So he actually speaks in Elvish, um, words that he doesn't understand, right? Um, it seems like another voice is speaking through him. So we have here manifested a power for good, right? What power it is? Is less is this Galadriel acting through him? Um, is it Galadriel's power? Is it the Valar? Is it Iluvatar? Not certain. I'm unclear about exactly what power is uh, is at work here. But it's clear that the fact that he's speaking as if another voice is speaking through him um, shows that some other power is in fact at work. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, it does not, in fact, mean day will come again. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Hail, Arendel, brightest of stars, um, is what this means. Um, Yana says uh, a lot of people think it's a spell, but it doesn't sound like one. No, it's not, but it is in another sense. That is, don't forget what the word spell means. Um, it doesn't mean what the word spell has come to mean in the post-role-playing game world, right? Um, spell means something that you say. Uh, and this is, in fact, something that he has said, and these words seem to have power. Notice that voice that's speaking through him, that power is like, addressing the light in the file that he has. What he says is perfectly appropriate. The light of Arendel shines out you know, the light of the Silmaril shines out in the darkness, and he says, Hey, Hyad, look, it's Arendel, the brightest of stars, right? Just a little observation, right? There it is. Um, you know, it's, it's, but, but again, the brightness of the light is also, you know, is, is, is uh, what is being not just observed, but in a sense being caused as well by the power for good, which is being manifested here. Galadriel's power, someone else acting through Galadriel, uh, you know, again, not really clear. Um, but other potencies there are in Middle-earth, powers of night, and they are old and strong. And she that walked in the darkness had heard the elves cry that cry far back in the deeps of time, and she had not heeded it, and it did not daunt her now. That sentence, by the way... Um, is on my top ten list for most creepy sentences in Tolkien. Um, uh, yeah, even as uh, even as Frodo spoke, he felt a great malice bent upon him and a deadly regard considering him. 
not far down the tunnel, between them and the opening where they had reeled and stumbled, he was aware of eyes growing visible, two great clusters of many-windowed eyes. The coming menace was unmasked at last. The radiance of the star-glass was broken and thrown back from their thousand facets, but behind the glitter a pale deadly fire began steadily to glow within, a flame kindled in some deep pit of evil thought. Monstrous and abominable eyes they were, bestial, and yet filled with purpose and with hideous delight, gloating over their prey, trapped beyond all hope of escape. Um... One side note that I'd like to make before we move along. There are some people who are inclined to quibble with Tolkien's description of uh, uh, of spiders. Um, of Shelob, that is. Um, and say, like, well, spiders aren't like that. Right? There are two primary objections that people tend to have about Shelob. One is that she has a stinger. Um, spiders don't sting, they bite. Poisonous spiders do not poison things by a sting, like a sting in their tails, like a bee, um, but rather through their bite. Um, and also, spiders don't have many faceted eyes, um, like a fly does. They don't have insect eyes like that. They have multiple eyes, as she is in fact described as having, but they're small eyes and they're not multifaceted. Um, so, as I said, I've known. Uh, I've known uh, people who are inclined to sort of quibble um, and uh, and sort of say, you know, Tolkien got spiders wrong here. I am in the of the school of thought that thinks that that's just a kind of a wrong way of thinking about Shelob and about this whole thing. Notice he doesn't say she's a spider. He doesn't identify her species such that we can then take him to task for getting the, the description of that species wrong. He says that uh, she, she is a creature in spider form. She is like a spider. Um, Spider is the closest thing we have to describe what she, you know, the, of all of the other things that we know of, Spider is the one that is most like what Shelob is, and she has many characteristics in common with spiders, um, but um, she is not a natural spider. Kay says, I object. Real spiders don't have the power to project darkness into our minds that we know of. But yes, exactly, Kay. That uh, would also be an appropriate response uh, to that uh, to that kind of argument. Um, anyway, I just wanted to kind of mention... So, and, but then going back to one of the points to which people object, instead of reading the reference to the uh, radiance of the star glass being broken and thrown back from the many thousand... from the thousand facets of her eyes, instead of reading that and saying, wait a second, spiders don't have many faceted eyes, stop! Why did Tolkien give her many faceted eyes? Um, and I think it's this image of the light of the star being broken and cast back. Remember Saruman? Um, uh, you know, the white light uh, uh, you know, uh, is to be broken. Um, we see Shelob doing this too. So I think that the, you know, the sort of the similarity there is, I think, an important one. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, Chris says the spiders of Markwood are described as her children. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, uh, she can beget children, sure. Why not? Um, and probably begat them, I guess, with other spiders, um, uh, which she slew afterwards, we're told. Um, no problems with that. Uh, when creatures of this kind, the creatures, you know, of this order 
who embody themselves um, seem to have natural functions. I mean, that is, they can have children, um, uh, like Luthien, for instance, whose mom was a Maya, who is manifesting herself uh, in a physical form. Um, I, uh, I, I assume that that's... Um, possible. I mean, that's, that's obviously possible for Maya. So, so yeah, again, it's not that she doesn't have a real body or anything like that. It's just if her description is different from other spiders, that's okay. I, I, I'm not so worried about that. Um, anyway, just, just wanted to make that point. Um, quick point that I would make here is we see we can see here a kind of tableau right of light against darkness Frodo holding up the light these elvish words coming out of his mouth um, some kind of power for good coming in and opposing the power for evil uh, which is in I almost said on Goliant which is in Shelob here um, but there's there's more we also see it in Sam watch what happens with Sam this is right before the last passage. It's a trap, said Sam, and he laid his hand upon the hilt of his sword, and as he did so, he thought of the darkness of the barrow whence it came. I wish old Tom was near us now, he thought. <clears throat> I've always kind of thought it would be awesome if he'd just give it a give it a shot, right? Sing the Tom Bombadil song. Can't hurt, right? It's gotta be good. Uh, even if Tom doesn't come. Still. Always disappointed he didn't at least give it a crack. Then, he, then as he stood, darkness about him and a blackness of despair and anger in his heart, it seemed to him that he saw a light, a light in his mind, almost unbearably bright at first, as a sun-ray to the eyes of one long hidden in a windowless pit. Then the light became color, green, gold, silver, white. Far off, as in a little picture drawn by elven fingers, he saw the Lady Goadriel standing on the grass in Lorien, and gifts were in her hands. And you, ring-bearer, he heard her say, remote but clear, for you I have prepared this. The bubbling hiss drew nearer, and there was a creak, a creaking as of some great jointed thing that moved with slow purpose in the dark. Uh, by the way, that's also on the short list of creepy sentences. A reek came on before it. Master, master, cried Sam, and life and urgency came back into his voice. The lady's gift, the star glass, a light to you in dark places, she said it was to be. The star glass. Now, what has happened here? On the one hand, we can see again, uh, and you may notice I'm starting to hurry a little bit uh, as I'm running out of time. Um, we, we can see again some force for good acting on Sam, right? This is not just, and suddenly Sam had a brainwave, right? Um, the way that the narrator emphasizes that this is, in a sense, an external intrusion um, are, is, is quite clear, I think. He sees, a, he, it seemed to him that he saw a light, a light in his mind. A light in his mind is important because we've just been told that his mind is being darkened and full, uh, full of the darkness that is filling Shelob's lair, right? And that darkness is entering into his mind. That is an external force acting upon him. Shelob's will acting upon him. Now, light comes into his mind, again, from outside. This is not just Sam musters himself and screws himself up to think about light and to fight off the darkness. No, light has come into him like darkness came into him. Um, and it's almost unbearably bright. He, you know, this is why he's not just remembering light, right? He's cringing back from this light at first. It's almost unbearable. Um, as a sun ray to the eyes of one long hidden in a windowless pit. Again, I think the effect of that is to emphasize how this is something that's coming from outside Sam, not something that's coming from within him. 
Um, and then, and then also the description of this picture that he's not just like, and then he remembered, oh yeah, Galadriel. No, he sees it. Like he gets a little film running in his mind. It's like he's seeing it. He's seeing it small and far off, and he's hearing the thing. Um, he is having this memory brought back to him from outside, um, and then he he seizes it. Right. Um, life and urgency come back into his voice, which I associate with him kind of grabbing onto this, you know, this thing that has been shown him, this thing that's been given him. Um, and then he turns and reminds Frodo. Um, I think also the way in which what starts at the beginning is simply stream of consciousness on his part, right? Just chain of association. Um, he... Uh, lays his hand on his sword. The sword makes him think of the barrow. Uh, the barrow makes him think of Tom Bombadil. I wish old Tom was near us now. Um, uh, but it's not like... And then that leads him to think of Galadriel, right? It's, you know, that there there is an extra step in this chain that has to happen, and that step is made externally. He is inspired, using the 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 literal sense um, of that uh, of that term. Uh, that that is, it is sort of breathed into him uh, from the outside. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, good. Um, now, look at what happens when Frodo uses the file. Not just takes it out and speaks his elvish uh, invocation. That was Alyssa's suggestion instead of spell. Um, this is now Frodo taking action. Galadriel, he cried, and gathering his courage, he lifted up the file once more. The eyes halted. For a moment their regard relaxed, as if some hint of doubt troubled them. Then Frodo's heart flamed within him, and without thinking what he did, whether it was folly or despair or courage, he took the file in his left hand, and with his right hand drew his sword. Sting flashed out, and the sharp elven blade sparkled in the silver light, but at its edges a blue fire flicked. Then, holding the star aloft, and the, bl- and the bright sword advanced, Frodo, hobbit of the Shire, walked steadily down to meet the eyes. They wavered. Doubt came into them as the light approached. One by one they dimmed, and slowly they drew back. No brightness so deadly had ever afflicted them before. From sun and moon and star they had been safe underground, but now a star had descended into the very earth. Still it approached, and the eyes began to quail. One by one they all went dark. They turned away and a great bulk beyond the light's reach heaved its huge shadow in between. They were gone. "'Master! Master!' cried Sam. He was close behind, his own sword drawn and ready. "'Stars and glory! But the elves would make a song of that if ever they heard of it! And may I live to tell them and hear them sing!' What just happened here? The thing that I think is really important, let's not forget the fact that he's just pulled out the light, it has. Sh- it is. You know, the light of the file has shined forth. He has, uh, you know, spoken his, uh, you know, his words of, in a sense, of defiance for the darkness and his praise of the light. Uh, and remember what we're told: as soon as those things happen, yes, yeah, she doesn't care, right? Other potencies there are in Middle Earth. She had heard the elves call that, and she wasn't bothered then, and she's not daunted now, right? Um, Frodo, def- you know, drives back Shelob, not 
or not merely by the power of the file. I think that we misunderstand this scene if we understand it simply as, I've got a bright light, and I'm coming, and you don't like light, do you? Oh, oh, I'm bringing it closer. Oh, it's right in your eyes. Oh, you don't like light, do you? It's not about the light. Um, she eats light, and we don't know if she eats light. Her mom ate light. Um, she seems to eat meat. But again, that that the the, the description of the darkness um, and the way that you know, that sort of positive darkness and that darkness that fills minds shows, at the very least, she wields darkness as a weapon. Um, so, and the narrator just told us that there are potencies of night which are also ancient and powerful and can oppose light. What happens here? She doesn't just run away when the when the file is taken out. Um, what has happened? I think Carolyn, Luke, and Tony are all correct. Uh, Carolyn says, Frodo has a flame kindled within him, and Shelob counters with a, dev- a deadly and evil flame kindled within her eyes. Two flames, one pure good and one pure evil. The file is the greater power. But also, Carolyn, note, as you said at the beginning, it's within Frodo as well. Frodo's heart flamed within him. That light, I think, is the difference maker here, right? She had flame within her. He has flame within him. What is going on here is not just file versus Shelob. It's not just uh, ancient power of darkness versus ancient power of light. That is happening, but that's not only what's happening. It is also Shelob's will against Frodo's will. And Frodo's will setting the file to its work. Um... Luke says that his defiance is reminiscent of when he stands up to the ring wraiths. I agree, and remember how significant Gandalf said that that was. Um, his resistance was what saved him uh, in that whole ordeal. Um, Tony says uh, Frodo is exercising his own will rather than calling on someone else's uh, power. Yes. Um, Alyssa says file is like the file is like an anti-ring. Uh, it does find an answer in his will, where the ring does no longer. Uh, remember, she's uh, refer- referring, of course, to the passage where you know no answer is in his will to, to resist his hand. Right? Um, uh, the file does respond to his will. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that, and that's why Sam is very right to respond the way that he does. Um, the elves would make a song of that if ever they heard it. Um, stars and glory. He's not simply saying, wow, that was awesome, right? We just saw some elf magic come out and whoop up on that monster eye thing, whatever it was, right? Um, that has happened, and Sam doubtless is pretty psyched about that, but it's Frodo's act of will. Um, Frodo has done something here genuinely heroic. Um, his choice, his own will, may seem small compared to the power of the file. Um, but notice the way it's emphasized. Frodo, hobbit of the Shire, walked steadily down to meet the eyes. The will of a hobbit of the Shire might seem like a very small thing compared to the ancient powers of good and evil that are here at work in the tunnel, but it's the deciding factor. It is that which, uh, you know, the, 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 the file, the power of the file, I'm tempted to say amplified by the power of Frodo's will, is what overcomes Shelob. And now, because now we get the emphasis on that light, no brightness so deadly had ever afflicted them before. Uh, and presumably that includes 30 seconds ago, <laughs> before Frodo calls out Galadriel and starts walking down toward them, um, toward the eyes, that is.
Um, uh, now a star descended into the very earth. The eyes begin to quail. She was not daunted. We're told she wasn't daunted. Now she is daunted. And again, I think it's Frodo's will, which is the crucial difference here. Um, and this, again, I think is, uh, um, is uh, a, an, another example of Tolkien sort of insisting, not just on like the big picture thing, not just like on the big picture destiny, this is the struggle of good versus evil, Frodo is merely an instrument. There are moments here where we're reminded that that's true, that that's happening, right? Frodo's shouting, you know, Sam has this intervention. Frodo is shouting out words he doesn't understand. This other power is acting through him. But he's not merely a passive instrument, a passive vessel for that force that's coming in from the outside. It's, it, had he not chosen, had he not done this, had he had his heart quailed, had he turned and tried to run, Sheila would have killed him here, even holding the file. It wouldn't have mattered. Um, that seems to me relatively clear. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, now we come... Now we come to the point that I so often come to near the end of classes, which is... Okay, I have another topic I want to discuss. It's 5.55 right now. I'm supposed to end class in like five minutes. Is it even worth starting this next topic? Normally, of course, I would because uh, uh, it's the last class. But, um, But I'm doing one more week anyway. Okay, I'll start it. But we're doing one more week anyway. I'll come back and finish it next week. And it's, of course, the big thing I wanted to talk about today, the choices of Master Samwise and Sam's decision to sort of wrap up our look at decisions and the decision-making process uh, in this book. Um, uh, Just quickly, Kay said... Kay, I want to make sure not to forget to say this. Kay says, um, may we send questions for the bonus uh, classes ahead of time? Yes. Um, Go ahead and send them to my email account, either the Tolkien Professor or the... Um, my Mythgard email account. Either, either just my last name, Olson at Mythgard.org or Olson at TolkienProfessor.com. Either one of those is fine. Why don't you send them to the Mythgard account? It would be a little bit easier. Um, Olson, Olson at Mythgard.org um, would be great. Um, so, um, so yeah, so we're, we're going we're gonna to do that. Okay. Um, Let's talk about Sam. A little bit, at least to sort of set it up, and then I'll let you. I'll leave you guys to 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 think about things. Um, what shall I do? What shall I do? He said. Did I come all this way with him for nothing? And then he remembered his own voice speaking words that at the time he did not understand himself at the beginning of their journey. I have something to do before the end. I must see it through, sir, if you understand. But what can I do? Not leave Mr. Frodo dead, unburied on the top of the mountains, and go home? Or go on? Go on? He repeated, and for a moment doubt and fear shook him. Go on? Is that what I've got to do? And leave him? Then at last he began to weep, and going to Frodo he composed his body, and folded his cold hands upon his breast, and wrapped his cloak about him, and he laid his own sword at one side, and the staff that Faramir had given at the other. Note the parallel to the beginning of the book, um, with the laying out of Boromir and his funeral, right? Um, uh, 
this is sort of a smaller version of it, and there's no f- waterfall near to hand, probably fortunately, under the circumstances. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, we can see sort of the parallel there. Um, note just as uh, the fact that Boromir was arrayed as for a funeral um, uh, shows to Faramir that all of his companions were not dead, so too the fact that Frodo has the cords cut away from him and is laid out as for a funeral, shows Shagrat and Gorbag that his companions are not all dead. Um, Anyway, um, the question that I want to ask, of course, about Sam's choices is, what do we think of them? This might seem an unfair kind of question, but I think we can ask it. Does Sam make the right choices? Is Sam wrong? Sam's hard on himself. Sam's often hard on himself. But Sam is hard on himself when um, when he uh, when he goes to uh, when, when he discovers later that Frodo is still alive, and you know he he feels that he obviously blew it uh, and made the wrong call here. Did he? It's easy. You know, we, we to some extent we end up playing some sort of what if games here, but. Notice here in this passage where things begin. Um, He remembers his own voice speaking words that he did not understand himself. I have something to do before the end. Uh, To use words which Sam wouldn't use, but which Frodo does use in similar moments, there is some doom laid upon him, right? He has a doom that he has to fulfill, which hasn't been fulfilled yet. Is this his doom? To leave Mr. Frodo and go on? Go on? Is that what I've got to do? Now that, notice again, the emphasis of his words. What I've got to do. The task which is laid on him. The path which is, which is laid before him. Right Again, to use other metaphors that have been used at different times. Um, he seems conscious. His initial dilemma you know his 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 choice is here suggested by his perception by his at least suspicion of this doom that is laid upon him this is his job what he's got to do now again later on not too far from now in a few pages he's going to claim that he got it wrong he's going to he's going to rebuke himself um and think that he misinterpreted things here did he do you think he's right or do you think he's wrong um, Jordan says, Sam makes the prudent and right choice for the situation, at least as he perceives it. The problem is in his perception of the circumstances, not in his decision-making. True. True. I mean, the great, the big problem here, of course, is that he does not perceive, um, with no real fault to himself, that Frodo is not dead. That Frodo is still alive. But... It's the prudent choice for the situation, Jordan, as you said. But wasn't Aragorn's choice to go after Merry and Pippin instead of following Frodo the imprudent choice? Haven't we seen people making... Wasn't Faramir's choice to let them go and follow Gollum to Kirith Ungol imprudent? That's not, that was imprudent, right? You know, we've been talking about folly and wisdom... Um, 
And, rem- and notice, uh, did you notice the way that those terms were used in that previous passage, right? Frodo not stopping to think uh, if, uh, you know, if what he was doing was foolish, if, if, not, w- whether it was folly or despair or courage, or all three, right? Uh, <laughs> possibly. Um, anyway. Um, it's prudent. Does that mean it's bad? That it's wrong? That he shouldn't have done the prudent thing? Keep thinking about this. We'll come back to this. Um, I'll plan to do class next Monday at the same time that we've been doing. We'll finish this up and I'll do some questions. If we have a lot of questions left over, maybe I'll do next Tuesday as well. Um, Be thinking about this. And of course, also be thinking about this passage. I'll read it next time. I'm not going to read it out now, but this is, of course, the, where Sam debates with himself. Read this. Go back and read this passage carefully. Think about this. Remember when we read the Gollum internal debate passage, for which this is a really interesting kind of parallel, right? We saw Gollum debating with himself. We see Sam debating with himself here, right? Um, rather, Sam overheard Gollum debating with himself. Now Sam is himself doing the same thing. Um... Make some careful observations here. Think about this passage. What do we see? And how does this help us to decide um, to sort of follow his thought process and see what kind of cues is the text giving us? Is he right to do what he does? Um, Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Um, One last thing I wanted to mention before I go, because I do have to let you guys go. Um, I hope that you guys will be able to join us on Sunday. Uh, The... Uh, Mythgard students, as I have, you know, as uh, we've been announcing, the Mythgard students have put together an all-day uh, festival on Sunday, um, the Mythgard Institute Webathon, from 11 a.m. Eastern time through 11 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to go for 12 hours. Um, it's going to be divided into into two-hour chunks. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on. There will be some uh, really fun interviews. There will be some new uh, content posted that's never been posted anywhere else. Um, there's going to be some live events and uh, throughout all of it there will be an opportunity to participate live for people to come in to, to, to participate through this same uh, venue it's not going to be recorded this is a live event only so you have to come um, uh, if you can so there will be a, uh, some of the snippets that will be done will be posted in other places later on but the event as a whole um, is uh, is not going to be is not going to be posted if you want to register uh, go to http uh, colon slash slash tinyurl.com slash mythgardwebathon. Um, so that, or you can also go, um, if you, I posted a link to it on my Facebook page and my Twitter account today, um, you can go to the mythgard.org website and you'll find links there in the Mythgard Academy uh, menu. You can, you can find a link for the, for the, the webathon or the telethon. Um, and you can, uh, and you can, uh, you can post it here. I will, uh, I will post for you the link so that you can get it if you want to see it. Uh, Here, I'll post it for you here. Yeah, there it is. Um, uh, So you can go there to register for the the webathon. Obviously, if you can't make the whole day, uh, you know, it's free enough to be there for all 12 hours. You can come and go. There are going to be lots of uh, special things that the webathon is being done to support our Indiegogo campaign, which is coming down towards its end. Uh, And there are going to be a lot of special... um, uh, 
special giveaways and drawings and things. There'll be special prizes you can win uh, if you're able to come in person. So uh, I definitely encourage you. It's going to be a really good time. And I'll be posting some more details on stuff that's going to be uh, happening to the d- different segments that are going to be occurring uh, during the day. So um, anyway, I, uh, I strongly recommend uh, that, uh, that you come and join us. I hope that uh, as many of you as can uh, make it or uh, will make it on Sunday. So I hope to see you then. And in any case, I will uh, also uh, hope to see some of you on Monday night as well as we finish up talking about the choices of Master Samwise and then take questions. Even if you can't make it, please do submit uh, questions that you have on the two towers. You know, we'll do, I'll do a sort of a larger, you know, as I said, a sort of a larger, larger more rambling uh, Q&A discussion uh, on Monday night as well. And, of course, Monday night session will be recorded and posted, so you'll be able to get recordings of that even if you're not there. Um, so, very good. Um, uh, very good. Excellent. So, thanks very much, everybody, and I will see you hopefully Sunday, uh, and uh, if not Sunday, then Monday. So, thanks very much, everybody. Bye!